So basically, <clears throat> we're still in the weeds. Is that what he's saying? <laughs> this is still I think not that's easy. exactly what he said. Yeah, and uh, I think we have nine question marks and eight verses if we're right here on another diatribe. And Josh, can you also remind us? Of what a diatribe is, because Miss Elizabeth explained this to us a couple of weeks ago very thoroughly. If you have not heard that, get the uh, tape, get the eight track. Of so, that. A diatribe is, I guess, would be an imaginary discussion with a hypothetical objection. So, Paul's imagining that he's talking to somebody, uh, going through some questions and answers. Uh, what a couple weeks ago would probably be a lot better summation of the diatribe, but uh, the invisible interlocutor, I think, Paul, is is going back and forth with, very similar to 2, 1 through 3. Yeah, good. And uh, before we read chapter 3, 1 to 8, um, uh, Steve was there, and uh, some Matthew was there, saw Matthew a lot by the fireplace. We were fireplace buddies. And uh, we just got back from, from Black Mountain, and, uh, and it was a joyous time, again, with uh, a bunch of guys that, that love the Lord Jesus. And um, Jeremy, our speaker, who had never been there, said before, it, it seems like you guys are all from the same church, and that there's that kind of uh, fellowship. And, and so it uh, was, a, was a great time. I did want to, uh, especially coming off last week, well, we're in week six of seven, of the bad news, but in chapter two, there was certainly, and Thomas was there as well, there was certainly um, a lot on the dangers of being judgmental as the Jews were, hypocritical, and you know, a pride issue um, overall. Um, and, and Jeremy talked to us about pride. I'd just like to give two quick things before we pray um, that I think were pretty helpful. Um, Pride, which starts with a P, also involves these other five words. Power, position, pleasure, prestige, or our possessions. Those are five dangers of, of, of pride, really. You can say power, position, pleasure, prestige, and possession. One thing that really um, hit me, convicted me, and I, I didn't know if I should mention them or not until Papa Fred said this was his favorite part were 14 prayer tips. He was very convincing on the idea that um, a lack of prayer is a pride issue, right? We get independent, especially as men, um, and, and ladies, you may experience in, in some way as well, but uh, let me just give you 14 quick prayer tips. Um, this is very, these are good, and, and I realized how few of these I really do. Pray in short spurts, like a chronic cough. I know Mark's talked about that before. First Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. Pray with friends. Pray for friends. Assign a song to a person. I've never thought about that. When you hear a song, assign a song to a person. Pray for them. During exercising, pray. While you're driving, pray. When you hear sirens, pray. Pray yourself to sleep. Um, you know, he said that all the other options of what you're going to think about. Why aren't we thinking about the Lord Jesus as we go to sleep? Pray before you get out of bed. Pray, um, and he wasn't saying this has to be all the time, but on your knees or in a prostate position to, to really come before the Lord with that kind of humility. Pray for things that matter. I thought that was really good. 
right? We pray for a lot of physical things. Let's pray for more spiritual things. Get a prayer list. Reminders. Put sticky notes up all over the place of things that you want to pray for. You know, if we need some from the fruit of the Spirit, let's put those up there and uh, pray for them. Pray immediately. When someone asks you to pray or when we say we're going to pray, and I'm deeply convicted of this. How many times have I said I was going to pray and, this, and then just really didn't? Just forgot all about it. And uh, pray immediately. And then pray for big things that only God can do. Pray for things that seem unlikely. The salvation of people that you're just like, wow, that can that probably can't happen. Pray for them. So there was a list of uh, um, some good things. Grant, would you pray for us now and then read chapter 3, 1 to 8, and we'll get busy. Sounds good. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, beautiful day that you have provided for us here that we can gather together as a local body um, to discuss and learn from your word. Father, I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts, that we would come to a right understanding of it through our uh, discussion and teaching. And Father, I pray that we would be able to apply it to our life in some capacity and that it would be uh, so impactful to us that we would continually remember it throughout the week and that it would change the way we act and speak and interact with others, Father. And I pray that you would uh, humble us, that we would be uh, less prideful than we were coming in today, Father, and that you would clearly make your word known to us by your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One more quick thing before you read the passage, and I'm not going to talk about Steve Krause because it would embarrassing embarrass him if I did, so I'm not going to talk about the way he served this weekend, which was relentlessly, but I would say Alan McCannon is absolutely in his element at this. This was his brainchild, I don't know what, I think Steve, 16, 17 years, 17 years ago, and to see the man serve, but what Uzi, it, joy, wouldn't you say, oozes out of him as he does it. Matthew, is that accurate? Yes, sir. And, and he serves with just such great zeal and such joy. And uh, he is worth the price of admission just to watch him operate. Josh, you've seen that. Oh, man. When you're there. Yeah, it's, it's nonstop. It Constantly is. Thinking about other people and looking to the needs of others. I mean, he arranges a, a meal operation, meals, multiple meals. Five. Five stars. Well, with snacks. With, yeah, with snacks. <laughs> For 100 people, uh, 100 plus men. Yeah, this is 55 so, this year, yep. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. No uh, vegetables, <clears throat> No vegetables. <laughs> Got the essentials. Or anything that even looked fluffy. It was only meat or stuff that other could clog your arteries. And uh, and so we may go to heaven sooner, but it was, it was certainly a... Uh, Quite a quite a weekend, and and so I don't know how to thank the Lord for men like him that have their giftedness and use it in such a, incredible for the fifty five guys, and then hopefully the families. You know that it branches out, right? It, hopefully, it's going to impact the wives and the kids, and down the road, other guys. So it's a neat thing when you see the Lord. Use people like that. Great. If you'd read 1 to 8, we'll get busy. All right, so continuing on from chapter 2, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Good. Grant, what do you get for starting in one and two? Because you're kind of coming off uh, his insights last week on what where the Jews are at and that it's not going to be their religion nor their circumcision that's going to save them. Right. Yeah, not their religion, their circumcision, not their heritage. Paul is just continuing the argument that he was laying out in chapter 2 uh, that merely possessing the law and then I think he's expanding it and just being... Um, children of Abraham by birth is not what uh, necessitates salvation. And so um, after chapter 2, I think verse 1 could be kind of confusing, or it was for me. If you read just chapter 2 in a vacuum, and then you go to chapter 3, you would say there is no advantage of being Jews. There's, there, there is no advantage at all. But Paul insists that there is uh, an advantage to being Jewish. And Schreiner states that the... Um, that Paul is defending the thesis that Israel is still guilty for its sin while affirming that the promises of their salvation will still be fulfilled. And, you know, I'm, I'm with Scott on this passage. He always talks about how when he first looks at a passage of Scripture, when he has to preach it, um, he doesn't really know what to do with it, and it's not very moving to him or uh, impactful. But as he reads it more, things begin to open up and unlock for him. And this is what chapter 3 was like for me. Um, at first, it was kind of difficult to understand the Jewish mindset, what's going on with uh, anything Jewish for me is very difficult just because I don't know much about it. But as I studied it more and with the help of these commentators who have studied it far more than I ever will, it's beginning to unlock Romans. It seems to be kind of a launching point, chapter 3. Because um, if you've ever read just Romans as a new believer, you probably skip right to Romans 8 and you sort of read that in a vacuum, and it's great, but a lot of the topics are kind of abstract because they don't really connect to the rest of Romans. And then you have this hard transition in chapter 9 through 11 of what about Israel. And so that's always been confusing for me. But 3, it seems like now it makes sense why Paul comes back to this topic of what's going on with Israel. Why is God still faithful even though the Jews don't believe? And so I think this passage is speaking... You know, speaking specifically about and to the Jews, Paul is. He's making his argument to a hypothetical Jew. Um, but Douglas Moo talks about that. I think we should have in the back of our mind um, as we go through this, there can be people who think that their religion will save them. So a member of a church, your baptism, good deeds, a religious family or heritage, that that can be somehow salvific in some way that we can be counted as a people of God simply by these things. Um, And I think for the actual believer, there can be this temptation. I think it's important to maybe have this in the back of our mind as we read through this, something like the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. We can abuse that and say, well, you know, God will persevere me to the end, therefore I don't have to worry about my own sin. I can act how I want. Uh, I think that's important to be thinking about here. And so the natural conclusion as we go into verse 3 would be, what advantage has the Jew? There's none. But Paul says 
adamantly that there are many advantages to being a Jew. <clears throat> and John MacArthur summed it up really well. He said it this way. Um, what advantage has the Jew? Um, the heritage being born of the seed of Abraham, the legacy of the law, the sign of circumcision, which is the march of, march, mark of the Jew, those things bring no <clears throat> salvation. They offer no spiritual security, no spiritual advantage. And that is the bubble that Paul burst in, in chapter 2. For the tendency of the Jew was to hold on to his Abrahamic heritage, to hold on to his possession of the law of God, and to hold on to his sign, the sign of circumcision, which marked him out as the covenant people, and to believe that because he had those things, he was therefore given spiritual exemption from condemnation. In other words, he was not really accountable for the evil he had done simply because he was a member of the right people. And that isn't the case. Paul says, and we saw that from verse 17 through 29, Spiritually speaking, the Jew really has no advantage. In fact, because he has been given the privilege of knowing so much and receiving so much from God, if he refuses to make it personal in his life and become one inwardly, he is at great disadvantage because to whom much is given, much is required. And to whom much is required, there's much, there is much greater condemnation. I think that was a wonderful way of, of, of summarizing that. And we know that from other passages of Scripture that the Jews typically... Uh, they relied on their Abrahamic heritage. We see this from John, I mean, from Matthew 3, 9, when John the Baptist is addressing the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. He says, uh, starting in verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Or in John 8, when Jesus is discoursing with the Pharisees, um, he says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So the Jews, they relied heavily on this heritage, as we see from Scripture. And rightly, John MacArthur points this out. Um, but there's no spiritual advantage, but there is advantage. And Paul says it right here. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul answers, much in every way. To begin with, uh, or first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, or the words of God. And this, I think is a great advantage. And he, he really only gets into that one advantage that the Jews had the oracles or the words of God. That's, uh, he says there are many, and he gets into that in the rest of the advantages in uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 4. He says that they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we see there Many advantages, but Paul focuses in on they have the oracles, or logia, I guess is how you say it, the words, the actual words of God, which is a prime advantage is to have that because you know, how can anyone be saved without hearing the words of God? So it's of prime advantage to have that. Um, MacArthur again says, the scriptures were entrusted to the Jews. You would have thought they would have absolutely cherished that, but as you read the Old Testament, you find there were times in their history when they couldn't even find the scripture. They didn't even know where it was, and when somebody would discover it and bring it out, it would be something that was a marvel because that which was lost for so long had finally been found. And then he also quotes William Cowper, the poet and hymn writer, they and they only amongst all mankind received the transcript of the eternal mind, were trusted with his own engraven laws, and constituting guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets, and theirs the priestly call, and theirs by birth the Savior of us all. And so we see that having the Word of God is, is prime advantage, and having that means, uh, well, that judgment would come first for, 
for them for neglecting yeah. that. It's amazing that he does give this list in chapter 9 of all these other advantages, even though he came out in chapter 2 and you would think he would, they hadn't, didn't have any advantages at all. But he camps on this one, God's Word. And wow, we could spend the rest of the half hour talking about God's Word and just the advantage that it is to us to have it, to enjoy it. And uh, and when you said that, Grant, there was a, a little conviction to say, sometimes I don't treat it like I'm uh, really that thankful for it or enjoying it as I ought, either, even as the Jews fell into that trap. Josh? Yeah, maybe just on that, I was just thinking of Psalm 19. Maybe we could just read it about... Yeah. about uh, how wonderful God's word really is. And um, <clears throat> starting in verse 7 of Psalm chapter 19, these are some descriptions of the word of God. Uh, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I just think there's, there's nothing like God's Word. And, and what a privilege it is to have it in our language, in uh, all different translations. We have accurate translations of the originals. Um, we have God's word. What a privilege. <clears throat> yeah, no, for sure. If someone was asking you, let's say an unbeliever was asking us, like, hey, wait a second, why are you going to Bible study? Why do you read your Bible? Seems like a waste of time. Why do you go to church to hear it? Well, what would you say? What is it about God's word? And there's a, a bunch of great answers for sure. But just personally, what would you tell them? It's such a great advantage to have it. Why? Why? Or what is it about it? Renews your mind. Yeah, renews your mind. Man, absolutely, isn't it? I remember our pastor in Myrtle Beach would put his Bible on his head when they're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2. So there's that idea that renews our mind good. Yeah. How else are we going to know his character? It reveals his, the character of God. So good. Thanks. All right. Good. It calls us to know. It what? It calls us to know. Good. Yeah, absolutely it does. Love it. Also, the Bible tells us the truth. Right. Uh, right. Some of y'all may be aware that we live in a world where people sometimes use the phrase my truth and yeah. your truth, but truth be told, there is no such thing as my truth or your truth. There's only the truth. The, yes. The Bible is truth. Yeah, so well put. Right. And the truth will set us free, right, Jesse? Good yes, night. Sir. And that is just, we want to know the truth. We don't want to be conned. Especially because, remember, we have those three liars out there that are all day long lying to us. John 8, 44 calls Satan a liar five times in one verse. Jesus reminds us. 
When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's always barking at us with lies. So is the world. Crazy full of lies. What we hear every day, bombarded by it. And then our own heart is deceitful above all things. So those are the three liars that we have to attack with the truth of God's word. And imagine you're like me, that when I am not meditating on the word day and night, I continually believe some lies that I shouldn't. Good stuff. What else? It's the beginning of wisdom. It gives you wisdom. Right. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where we get that. Yes. It's the what? Good. Yep, consider the heart. It's a weapon. It's a weapon. Yes, it's the sword. It's the sword of the spirit. And the, and don't you think that there needs to be some multiple swords that we know? We need to know Romans 8, but we need to know Romans 3, and we need to know Psalm 119, and we need to know these things so well so that we've got a repertoire. Is that the right word? we got a, a number of swords that we can get out to fight the way it ought to be. You guys in at the Masters, it had to be a heavy emphasis on, on how important this is in counseling or, or in life. Tell us. Yeah, I've, I've, maybe it's Quasi, you said it. it. When we memorize the Word of God, it has a shaping influence on our mind and how we think and the categories by which we process things, the discernment that we apply to world and cultural issues. So uh, I had one professor that would talk frequently. You know, I may have had him for four or six or seven classes, and he would talk about the early Christians would memorize the entire Gospel of Mark. That was kind of like the first step into <laughs> yeah. entrance into the community or family of God is memorization of the entire book of Mark. Because they didn't have, you know, a bound copy like we have today. It was, uh, many of them didn't. And, and really to have a, a copy of the scriptures like we have today is uh, a real blessing that we have. And I think kind of more of a recent development. Um, so, you know, I, I just think the, the privilege that we have to read and study it, to access it at any time, any place, we can get it on the World Wide Web. Um, but then memorizing it truly does, I think, have a, more of an impact on the way we think and on our mind and what we love, what we cherish, I think, than we realize. Yeah. Where's Josh Connick? When do we need him? Right? Memorizing the word, meditating on it day and night, observing to do according to all that's written, and then there'll be, you'll be prosperous, and then you'll have good success spiritually. Such, so many great promises. And thank you for taking us to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, a great place to meditate on out of, I think, 173 of those 176 verses that are uh, directly mentioned God's word. Um, if you look at this one thing, that advantage, even though he's going to mention later, the oracles of God, that's what the Jews have. I don't think we can be over, overly thankful for the word. We have got to be so grateful Every day, thank the Lord for the word. Every day, bathe your mind in it. Every day, be consumed by it. Share it. Enjoy it. I found this pretty interesting. I think it was Boyce. He says, for the unbeliever even. And I think this is good. If you have an unbelieving friend, 
that they're like, I'm not going to read the word. Study it with them. Get somehow uh, get them, help them to be able to read it. Pray that they'll read it. Because these three things is what he said. I thought this was good. Even if God never saves you by drawing you from darkness of your sin to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you at least sin less because of the advantages and therefore are punished less severely. That is interesting, isn't it? 2-5, uh, flip back a page if you need to, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when God's judge, righteous judgment will be revealed. So even the unbeliever, I think it was, oh, it might have been Edwards, that said that the sinner would give up the world to have one sin less when they're in hell. So it's interesting that the Bible would, can even help with that. Going to church, listening to the preaching of the Word of God, if you are in a good Bible-believing church, will at least cause you to know the way of salvation, even if you don't respond to it. I found that interesting. The third great advantage here, as I read to my phone, the third great advantage, I'm sure it could be the third great advantage, but I think it's supposed to be the third great advantage of the church attendance and, above all, church adherence, to the preaching and study of the Word of God is that, although you cannot claim this as a right from God, it is through the reading and preaching of the Word of God that you are most that's most likely to save you. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And once you know Him, sanctify Him by truth. Your Word is truth. John 17, 17, Jesus prays that. And when Jesus prays to the Father, God answers in the affirmative. We will be sanctified if we bathe our mind in the Word of God. Grant, how about three and four? Um, pretty interesting. I know you started this on it. Yeah, just on that real quick. R.C. Sproul talked about it this morning. I listened to him that when he uh, was growing up, he went to the like a super liberal church in uh, I think Pittsburgh, and the, the pastor didn't even believe in the resurrection or any of the miracles of Jesus. But he said, ironically, they would read from the Word of God as part of their liturgy at the beginning of the service. And he said, even though I wasn't a believer, the church wasn't faithful to the preaching of the Word, they read it, and so he had it, and it was of great advantage to him because that's the way to salvation is through the Word. It was just interesting the way he brought that out. But um, Three and four, so <clears throat> really getting to the argument part of what Paul is trying to say here and how he's advancing his argument from three into uh, the introduction of the gospel later in three and that no one... Uh, is righteous. So uh, it's a little tricky for me. So if, if I start faltering, y'all help me out because it seems like as soon as I start understanding or I feel like I'm grasping what Paul is, his flow of argument here, I, I lose it if I think about it too long. But he says, so the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had great advantage in that way. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaith or does their faithlessness or unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God. And he says, by no means, or as MacArthur says, that word means no, 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 not possible, certainly not, impossible, no way. Uh, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he goes into Psalm, but we'll stop there for now. And so uh, the question would be, is God unfaithful to the Jewish people in his promises, even though there were some that did not believe? How, how can God be faithful if there were some that did not believe because he has promised in his word for future salvation of Israel. Uh, does, their un, does their unbelief or their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, by no means. There's no way that God can be unfaithful uh, in what he says and what he does. 
Um, and he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Meaning God is always going to be true. We're all liars in some capacity, but there's no way that he could be false in anything that he says. And then he grounds this, that God is righteous in everything that he will do, and then also in his judging righteousness. Um, he's righteous in his justice. So he starts with a quotation from Psalm 51. Yeah, Psalm 51, the psalm from David when he is confronted by Nathan for his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then his uh, orchestration of the murder of her husband Uriah. So Nathan confronts him. Uh, he's convicted of his sin. He has this psalm where he's confessing his sin before God. You've probably all read it. But then he quotes the specific part that you may be justified in your words and that you there is God. Like you could put a capital Y on that. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you, God, are judged. So David's saying here that the judgment of God is right on him. And so Paul's appealing to this. Uh, MacArthur says you always appeal to David when you're talking to a Jew because that always throws a kink in, into their argument. But So the Jew of Jews, David, the, the great Jew David, uh, thought that it was righteous for God to judge him in his sin. So the question would be the Jews are covenant people of God. They don't think, you know, that's... They're, they're in agreement, we know from chapter 1, they would be in agreement with the condemnation of the Gentiles. Of course, Gentiles and their wickedness would be judged, but what about God's covenant people? Uh, would they be judged? And it's right for God to judge them. Even David thought it was right to be judged in his sin. Y'all have anything on that or you want to keep going? Josh, that's great. Um, maybe can I just zoom out for a second and maybe take it from a big picture perspective and come back at it maybe from a different angle so if you think about the book of Romans for me if I don't have it organized in my mind I just can't work it out and make sense of it but if you've got eight chapter 1 18 to 32 you've got the condemnation of the Gentiles they were exchanging the worship of God for the creation they made the great truth exchanges and then jump into chapter 2 and we have the uh, judgment of the the moralist and perhaps the the self-righteous Jew and then in 17, you know, the end of 2, Paul breaks down this argument that the Jews were saying, well, we had the law. God wouldn't judge us because we had the law, and we had the covenant sign of circumcision in verses 25 to 29. So Paul's breaking down the argument that just because they had the law and they had circumcision that they would be spared from judgment. Paul's saying it's not true. And then like a master teacher at the beginning of chapter 3, he is taking some possible objections that he thinks may uh, be given back to him. And that's where he's going through these question and answer. We have, what, nine questions here? So, um, he, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at here in chapter 3 before we've got the last kind of summation of everybody is sinful. Nobody will stand before God uh, righteous. Um, everyone is sinful. Everyone needs the gospel, which he'll then go into. So you can see Paul as a master teacher, uh, specifically addressing different groups, and then here in our passage today, specifically taking on some objections. The first being, well, if the law and circumcision don't make the Jew right before God, then what advantage is there for the Jew? And as Grant was saying, there are, in chapter 9, he'll take up this question a little bit more fully in detail but for now, there is great advantage because they had the oracles of God. And then in these next few verses, the next objection is, is uh, 
what if the Jews were unfaithful? And I thought you summed it up really well. And he quotes in, at the end of verse 4 uh, the psalm from David. And Nathan confronts him and he repents. And it's this great psalm um, where David's pleading for God's forgiveness. Um, and then he, but Paul quotes a certain part of that chapter, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so David is agreeing that God would be right to judge him, that God would be right to, um, you know, his sin deserved judgment because it was evil. David is agreeing with God there. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's agreeing with David. But what's interesting in this verse to me, and you guys probably got this from Schreiner and Doug Moo and some of the other commentaries, what's really fascinating to me about this verse is that in verse 3, Paul is contrasting the unfaithfulness of man with the faithfulness of God, the lies of man with the truth of God. And then um, in, in the psalm that he quotes there, I guess it's an affirmation of God's judgment. And so I think what Paul is getting at here is to show God's faithfulness, his truthfulness includes his right judgment of sin, which the Jews thought there's, there's no way that can be true. And Doug Moo put it like this, God is equally faithful when he judges people's sin as when he fulfills his promises. His faithfulness includes both fulfilling his promises and the judgment of sin. That's why I think he quotes that uh, part of the Davidic psalm, is he's pointing out that God's faithfulness, his truthfulness, includes his right judgment of sin. I, I don't know, I, hopefully that makes sense. Oh, no, sense. That, is well, that is well put and helps us explain it. Schreiner said something similar. He said that... Uh, the saving righteousness of God does not rule out his judging righteousness. His saving righteousness, his judging righteousness, he's righteous all the way around. These guys said it. If you can persevere till September, and hopefully this will be a little bit of a uh, help to get us there, is that he is, this is a legitimate question, because he is going to answer this in three chapters from 9 to 11, if we can make it that long. Right? there, He is going to give a really, really thorough answer. I want to give you... Just uh, what what boys said were kind of the highlights of that. But on this really good question, he's going to answer it. He ask it again in nine six. But is it not as though the word of God has failed? Right. He gives all of these great promises in chapter eight, and then it's like the Jews aren't. They're they're not even uh, part of it. Right. They can't even enjoy them because they're not even at this point. They don't even believe in Jesus. And so here he says there's six things that Paul, six ways that Paul answers it. And I'll just read them to you. We'll come to them in uh, about six months. God is sovereign in human affairs and does all things justly, even if this means passing over the mass of Jewish people for a time. Okay, that's Romans 9, 1 to 21. Romans 9, 22 to 33. Now, just like Paul would do, it's going to be a very logical argument. I, lo I love these. God prophesied that Israel as a whole would reject Christ and that he would offer the gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, that's in chapter 9. Chapter 10. The offer of the gospel to the Gentiles was nevertheless for Israel's own good, since it was intended to provoke them to jealousy and therefore to faith. 
So it was for Israel's good, although as Gentiles, we're really thankful, really thankful today that we have the oracles of God as the Jews did then. Number four, and this is in chapter 11, verse 1. In spite of the universal offer of the gospel to the Gentiles, as well as Jesus and uh, as well as the Jew in Israel's jealousy of that fact, a remnant of Jews is nevertheless going to be saved. 11 1. 11 2 to 24, most of chapter 11. This situation is no different than what it's always been. Because even in earlier days, all the Jews were not saved. Right? This is the way it's always been, chapter 11 argues. But rather, it was only a remnant that believed and was faithful. And then finally, number 6 here, clear at the end of chapter 11. Notwithstanding Israel's present and persistent unbelief, there will yet be a day of natural of national blessing in which God's promises to Israel will be completely fulfilled. We look forward to that. I know Tyler loves the Jewish people after he's been out in Israel and spent some time there. Loves it when they see them come to, to love and know Christ. So a very legitimate question here that he asks at first, um, or that his, what did you call those guys, the opponent? <coughs> The, the in the diatribe they're the uh, no, uh, inner invisible interlocutors <laughs> <laughs> those guys he's answering them and that guy gives a real question and that now this is what I got a kick out of where the commentator says this next question not so sharp he said it's more like a quibble right the one in chapter 5 listen to this one uh, I'm in chapter 9 back to chapter Three. Now he go, gives this quibble, and that's why we're not spending as much time on it today either. But if our righteousness, listen to how ridiculous this is, and he's of course going to answer with what? What a ghastly thought, right? What a ghastly thought. How, how can anybody even ask that? That's ridiculous, right? Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in the human. You can almost see, like, Paul's almost embarrassed even to write this. Like, I speak in the human. Please don't think that for one second that has ever crossed my mind. I'm just talking as the opponent of what he might say. And he goes on to the ridiculous question. And by no means, for then how could God judge the world? The idea is, oh, if God's righteousness is shown by my sin, let there be a sin fest. Let me sin like crazy so God looks better. That's where he really... Grant, can you tell us how ridiculous that question really is? Uh, I mean, that that is... Um, quibble. I'm not even going to call it a question. A big quibble? Yes. You know, I probably... I have sort of a different understanding of... So, I think that... That, that is one way to take it, but it just seems so self-contradictory to say that, that God's right in judging me, and he looks better when he judges me for my sinfulness. Therefore, it would be unright for him to judge me in my sinfulness. It doesn't <clears throat> really make sense. And so uh, I thought Schreiner had a really good way of putting it for this one. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, I think he's still talking about the save, I mean, the judging righteousness of God coming off the quote from Psalm. Uh, God made a lot of promises to David. David sinned. There was punitive punishment in David's family for the rest of his life for that sin. So it's still the judging righteousness of God. What shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And so 
this thought from Schreiner kind of opened up, I think, why this topic is so important to Paul, especially in Romans 9 to 11. Like, why do we just transition from all this stuff in chapter 8 to back to back to this topic with the Jews again? Why is it so important to him? And I think he's presenting theology here that they're, he's anticipating their response to his theology, as you said, Josh, but he says that um, their thought would be if human beings cannot co- cooperate with God's grace and if his grace shines more brightly in rescuing helpless human beings from sin, then Paul's Jewish adversaries concluded that Pauline gospel teaches that we should do evil to advance God's grace in saving impotent sinners. Indeed, the opponents wonder how God could legitimately judge his people since human beings are so corrupt that sin is inevitable and all depends on God's electing grace. So they're responding to Paul's sovereignty in the doctrine of election. I think something that he brings up again in chapter 9, for sure, with um, with divine sovereignty in election, but also he'll bring it up again, I think, in 6, this problem of how are humans responsible for the judgment of God if we're so corrupt, if the Jews are so morally corrupt like the Gentiles that they can't be saved other than the divine electing grace of God. How can, how can God judge us? And so that's what he's asking. And then he says, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's not the right way to think about it. That's, I speak in a human way. That's a wrong argument. By no means, uh, that strong no again. And then he says, this was always interesting, for then how could judge God judge the world? I was wondering, what is, how is that the answer to this question of, of Paul's theology? Because, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, we know God judged the world, and therefore if he can't judge you because of your sin, because it makes him look good, then that's wrong because we know he will judge the world. But I think uh, Schreiner again points out that the Jews would have accepted that uh, God would judge the Gentiles. And so he's saying, based on your logic here, if, if we're so morally corrupt that we can't be judged because of God's divine saving election of us, without that we can't come to no faith, the Gentiles are just like that. So how could, by your logic, how could God judge the Gentiles as well? You know that he's going to judge the Gentiles. We can all agree on that as a Jew. God's definitely going to judge the Gentiles. So by your logic, he couldn't even judge the Gentiles by that. So if we know he's going to do that, we know that what you're saying can't be true. And then he continues there in verse 7. Yeah. So I thought that Can was Can you tell clear. us about, you're the resident expert on consequentialism. Oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I read it. <laughs> yeah. Same passage you read. Doriani. If you have Doriani. It's very good. Yeah. So it was um, <laughs> this the thought process that uh, the ends justify the means, that the consequence of things totally dictate whether or not you should do them, not the objective truth of what God says on a matter. So his example would be... Uh, Say a thief shoots the guy that he's stealing from, and then that guy in the hospital winds up marrying the nurse. Therefore, this, should the thief be not judged because he shot the guy because something good came out of it? And at first you're like, yeah, that's obviously a terrible, terrible argument. Nobody really thinks that. But I think you, you've probably been challenged on something like this with, like, abortion. Uh, you're a Christian. You believe that uh, aborted babies go to heaven. So why not just fill the courts of heaven? You know, something wicked like that kind of logic can mm-hmm. can proceed. And then I think even in the most nuanced ways, we, we see it in everyday life. He pointed it out in just normal circumstances. We work yeah. out we work out to be, what was it, better looking or stronger, and or we eat healthy to live longer. Um, we go to school to get higher paying jobs. That a lot of the ways consequentialism can, can creep into our thinking 
is through things like that. We want a good outcome, so therefore that's why we do something. We don't do it because of God's word or, or a, a conviction on something. Well, that's good. Thanks. Josh, hard to follow that. Could you please? <laughs> sure. We, I want to know what you think. I know we're running low on time here. Well, I think that you ought to finish us. Okay. That's what I think would be great. Um, and this, and I'll try and speed through this really quickly. In 3, 5, and 8, you've got some really wrong thinking that Paul's dealing with here. And I think some of his detractors were trying to levy this charge against him that um, this, you know, why not do evil that good may come? Because they knew if they could pin that on Paul, it would discredit his gospel. Because that kind of thinking was so foreign to the Jewish mind that it just didn't, didn't matter how you lived, that God's moral law really didn't matter because God's uh, grace would abound. Um, I, I, I thought that was interesting from, from that point. Maybe I'll just pause with that. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Three to one to eight. Israel's still guilty for their sin while affirming that the promise of their salvation will still be fulfilled. If that can sum it up, we've got one more week of bad news. And then the most glorious paragraph possibly ever written in the history of paragraphs written is when we'll get to in uh, two weeks, chapter 3, 21 to 26, which is the gospel. Josh, would you close this? If you would uh, camp on uh, those next about, what, 13 verses there, um, verse 9 to 20, 12 verses um, for next week. Josh? Sure. Father, thank you for allowing us the opportunity to read and study and look into your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and uh, for speaking through him to write the book of Romans. And Lord, I pray that this week we would apply this truth to our lives and we would study your word deeply and memorize it and count it a great privilege that we have your word in written form and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.